Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Well, good evening to you. We are going to start this evening in Isaiah 34. I am going to assume because of the bad weather outside, despite our slightly later than regular starting time, I'm going to assume that you all have nowhere to be. And so we're going to try to bite off a reasonably large sized chunk tonight. We're going to try to get through chapter 34 and chapter 35, because chapter 34 and 35 really do belong together because they stand as a contrast to one another. And it is the end of this very long section that we have been in for the last couple of months that is all predating the time of the Assyrian captivity of the northern tribes of Israel and their attempt to take Jerusalem even though they did take some of the cities of Judah and the southern portion there. And yet God, in the midst of that, is now going to declare his punishment, his correction for the enemies of Israel. And then chapter 35 is yet again a recitation of Israel's glorious future. This glorious future is a theme in the book of Isaiah. It keeps coming up. And every time that it comes up, it's very specific who the people are that he's talking about, the land that he's talking about, the city that he's talking about. And not only is he specific each time that he says it, but he keeps saying it. He says it over and over again. And therefore, I contend that when it comes to the topic of God's faithfulness to Israel and his intention for their glorious restoration, that you cannot be genuinely biblical and deny that because it keeps coming up. Now, what we're going to see is that Isaiah, especially in chapter 34, as he's talking about judgment, is going to use language that is very familiar sounding to us because we know the book of Revelation. He's going to use language that is picked up by John, the revelator, and then John repeats these things that Isaiah has already said. So we're sort of familiar with Isaiah's language backwards. It's because we're familiar with Revelation that we're going to read it in Isaiah, and it's going to resonate with us. And we're going to say, oh, that sounds familiar. But when he said these things, the book of Revelation obviously had not been written yet. It would still be another seven, 800 years before those things were written. And so what we need to remember is that John the Revelator actually quotes things from, concepts from, the book of Isaiah, and he does that after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In other words, the New Testament authors that pick up the prophetic words of the future for the world and for Jerusalem, they pick up that language and restate it after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as a way of affirming that these are still good promises. These are promises from God. These are what God's prophets have already said. And they're just simply reaffirming that this is still good. This is still going to happen. What we know that Isaiah did not know is that we know now that there's a 2,000-year period, 2,000 years plus, give or take, we know at least 2,000 years now, where God has been dealing with the church, the church of the Jews and the Gentiles. And during this period of the church age that will culminate in Christ coming back to get his bride and take them to heaven, after which God will pour out his wrath and his judgment, We know that, but Isaiah and his listeners didn't know that. They didn't know that there was going to be this gap of time. As we've talked about several times, the prophecies that we see in the book of Isaiah oftentimes leap over millennia. And 
Isaiah sees these prophecies as one big whole, one big complete prophecy. So when he sees the coming of the Messiah, he also sees the culmination of all the promises that have been made to Israel. He sees it as part and parcel of one great big prophecy and package from God. Which is why when Jesus was on the planet and as more and more people were understanding that he was the Messiah, they had that anticipation. The kingdom's going to be now. They tried to make him the king. Uh, The book of Acts tells us that they even asked the question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Well, naturally they would ask those kind of questions because Isaiah's prophecies do this thing where they just leap over millennia and centuries and he talks about things that are going to happen immediately like the Assyrian armies taking away the northern kingdom and also making their way to Judah and then right within that context suddenly he will leap forward to these prophecies that are clearly eschatological because they simply have not happened yet chapter 34 and 35 of Isaiah does that a lot The vast majority of chapter 34 and 35 has this very eschatological bent to it. But you're also going to see God declare things that are forever and things that are going to happen from generation to generation through all of time. Things that simply have not happened yet. For instance, if you look at Matthew 25, and and you don't need to go there, I am going to try to get through all of this this evening but in Matthew 25 you read about starting around verse 30 or so you're going to read about Jesus saying that he is going to sit on his throne and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats but if you really read the language he says that he's going to bring all nations before him and the separating that he is doing is between nations And he's going to put his sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And that's why he says things like, I was hungry and you didn't feed me and I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. And the goats are going to say, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty and we didn't give you anything? And he said, if you've done that to the least of these, my brethren, then you've done it to me. Okay, that's a very pro-Israel statement that we have read through 21st century Gentile church eyes for so long that we think the separation between the sheep and the goats is between those who are saved and those who are not saved and then whatever the unsaved have done to any of us, they've actually done it to Christ. But the context, if you go back and look at it, is a dividing of nations. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah is about to describe here in chapter 34 of Isaiah. So even Jesus talking about judging between nations is very Isaiah language chapter 34 starting at verse 1 says draw near O nations to hear and to listen O peoples that's the word goy you've heard me talk about the goyim the non-Jewish people that language is very specific So draw near all you non-Jewish nations to hear and to listen, O you goy, you people of the earth who are not Jewish. Let the earth hear and all that it contains, let it hear and the world and all that springs from it. So this is God pronouncing an announcement to everybody in the world, not just to the Jews. He's now going to proclaim himself to the Gentile nations, and his message is one of utter judgment. Verse 2, for the Lord's indignation is against all the Gentile nations, and his wrath is against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them, and he has given them over to slaughter. Okay, now that starts to sound very day of the Lord type language, because we know he hasn't done it yet. We know occasionally we see armies and peoples destroyed from the earth, but those are individual moments 
Here God is saying that all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, when it comes time for him to set everything right, that he is going to judge all those nations who have come up against Israel. He's going to defend his people Israel, and he's going to judge the Gentile nations. He is utterly going to destroy them, and he has given them over to the slaughter. So their slain are going to be cast out, and their corpses are going to give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched in their blood. Okay, that's pretty judgmental language. But it's also language that we would have to say if we took that seriously, if we read it for what it actually says, we'd have to admit that it hasn't happened yet. And yet God declares that it's going to happen. All the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anybody? Go to Revelation 6 for a moment. Keep your finger there in the book of Isaiah. Go to Revelation 6. And we'll start reading at verse 12. Okay, verse 9. Starting at verse 4, you read about the remnant of Israel, the 144,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Very specific language. That people attempt to say is the church or all the redeemed of all ages. But again, I emphasize that's not what it says. What it says is 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Starting then at verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. And in contrast with the 144,000 who are clearly from the 12 tribes of Israel, this group is from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues. And they were standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said to them, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them and they shall never hunger nor thirst anymore. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of water of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. But I realize now that what I just read to you was chapter 7, when in fact I was trying to read chapter 6. And yet it was such a good section that I just kept going. I kept reading. Let's try this time to go to chapter 6, verse 12. That looks much more like what I'm looking at. This is right before the 144,000. Chapter 6, verse 12, and I looked, and when he, that's Christ, broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree that casts its unripe figs when it's shaken by the wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and every island were moved out of their place. So that seems to be describing earthquakes, planetary shifts, and that the sky itself is going to be rolled up like a scroll. Isaiah described the same thing. 
all the hosts of heaven will wear away and a sky will be rolled up like a scroll. When John described that in the book of Revelation, it was something that Isaiah already knew, already saw, had already prophesied. It was nothing new. It was no novelty. I have argued for many, many years that the only way you can understand the book of Revelation is to be thoroughly educated in your Old Testament first because so many of the symbols, so much of the imagery is drawn directly from the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is a very Jewish book. And if you don't know your Jewish scripture and you try to interpret it and understand it through 21st century Gentile eyes, you're just going to make a mess of the book. So we're back in Isaiah. All of the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll and all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine and as one withers from a fig tree. Does that sound familiar? We just read it. The hosts of heaven are going to be thrown down like a tree that casts off its unripe figs. The exact same imagery here in the book of Isaiah. By the way, you will also notice that God is in control of all their hosts. That should resonate with you after this past Sunday's message. The name Lord God Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, is demonstrating that he is in fact Lord of hosts right here. As he is in judgment and control over the hosts of heaven and earth. Verse 5. First person speech from God for my sword will be satiated in heaven. In other words, my sword is going to be filled up completely. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. Okay, really interesting. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. The descendants of Esau are the Edomites, those people, that people group on the planet to this very day, are the people of the Middle East who are enemy to Israel, who always have been, who are to this very day. Those people are not followers of the Abrahamic faith, even though they claim Abraham is their father, and based on that, they claim that the land of Israel belongs to them because of their connection to Abraham. But they don't follow the Abrahamic faith, and they don't follow the Abrahamic God. Instead, that is the area of the world where the Muslim religion holds sway. So these are anti-biblical, anti-Christian people, descendants of Esau, who make up the nations who the whole history of the Old Testament, the whole history of the Middle East, is about Egypt taking Israel into captivity. And then after them, the Assyrians, and after them, the Babylonians, and then after them, the Greeks. And that's the first time that you see a little bit of European influence coming in, and and then finally to Rome. But it is always the descendants of Esau that are right there surrounding Jerusalem, causing Jerusalem historically, for the whole of history, causing Jerusalem a tremendous amount of trouble. That's the people group. So this judgment from God where he declares that he's going to satiate his sword because it desires vengeance, he says, is upon Edom, that group of people. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. Steve, look up Romans 9.22. You'll be familiar with this immediately when we read the book of Romans and we come across this particular verse. People will accuse us of misunderstanding it or misreading it, and they will say, you're reading it that way because you're a Calvinist and because you're reformed in your theology, that's the reason you read it the way you do. But what Paul said is not an isolated thought, and in fact, Being a thoroughgoing Jew who was deeply entrenched in the scripture, he knew this prophecy. And all he's doing in Romans 9 is reaffirming what Isaiah has already said. In other words, let me put a very fine exclamation point on it. What the prophets have said 
is still validated after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The New Testament authors keep reaching back to these things, which Paul said are the God-breathed scriptures, which Jesus himself said the scriptures cannot be broken. This is the same Jesus in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. So the Old Testament is not done away with. He said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. So when you see all of that language collectively, and then you see these kinds of examples, what you really should be recognizing is that the Old Testament and the New Testament are very much in coordination with each other. The New Testament is not abolishing the Old Testament. It's the satisfaction of it. It's the fulfillment of it. It is the continuation of the very same God and the very same Messiah dealing with the very same people, which is why you see so much in the New Testament about Israel. Okay, so Steve is now going to read for us Romans 9.22 and any other verses he feels like reading because after all I read a whole half a chapter out of Revelation that I didn't mean to read. So, Well, to set the context, we should read verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And then verse 22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction... And then verse 23 ends the thought, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So that is describing a very, very sovereign God who makes people for glory, for the purpose of glory, people whose names he's written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, and then people who are fitted for destruction. That's the King James language. People who are prepared for destruction. Isaiah says that these people who he is judging of the Edomites are the people whom I have devoted to destruction. So whether you're looking at Isaiah or whether you're looking at Paul, you're reading about the exact same sovereign God who is in complete control of all human life, and he's the one who determines what he's going to do with everybody, and he decides whether to save or whether to judge. He decides whether names have been written down or whether vessels are fitted for destruction because, as Steve just read, he's the potter, we humans are just the clay, and he can do whatever he wants with the clay. I have devoted these people to destruction. The sword of the Lord, says verse 6, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. Last week we talked about the God that Isaiah knows. And we said that that God, in large part, is ignored these days because people don't like the idea of a judgmental God, of a righteous, holy God who will avenge himself, whose justice demands that he avenge himself, that his righteousness, his holiness demands a defense, and he's going to defend himself. And people these days don't like that. They just like the big kind of mushy marshmallow God who loves everybody, and that's not the God that's described in the Bible. The God in the Bible, the God that Isaiah knows, is a God who says things like, my sword is going to be filled with blood, and it's going to be sated with fat and with the blood of lambs and goats and with the fat of the kidneys of the rams. In other words, he's saying, my sword has had all the fat of animals and all the blood of animals I can take. It's saturated with it. And that's not enough. Now my sword is going to be satiated in heaven with judgment that I bring down on people. For the Lord, says the last part of verse 6, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Okay, what has he just done? He has said that the children of Israel have been sacrificing animals to me. They've been sacrificing blood and fat and the blood of lambs and of goats and the kidneys of rams. They've been slaughtering bulls. They've been bringing me all that stuff, but they haven't been following me. They haven't been living according to my law, my statutes, my covenants. And therefore, I am absolutely up to here with all that fat and sacrifice and blood of animals. So I'm going to make a sacrifice for myself in Basra 
a great slaughter in the land of Edom. God is going to sacrifice, this is hard to think about, sacrifice the blood of humans to himself because of his own righteousness. That's the God that Isaiah knows. Verse 7, now the land of Edom, after he has made this slaughter in the land of Edom, the land of Edom is then going to be taken over by wild animals. Wild oxen will also fall with them, young bulls with strong ones, and thus their land will be soaked with blood, and their dust will become greasy with the fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance and a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. His defense of Zion, his defense of his holy hill, his defense of Jerusalem, his defense of the place where he placed his own name, that defense is going to result in a day of vengeance. Does that sound familiar? Because we get Daniel talking about the day of the Lord and talking about a time of tribulation such as never was, ever would be again. You get Jeremiah talking about it, saying that it is the day of Jacob's trouble, but they will be delivered through it. You get Jesus talking about it, a day of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. And the language of the day of the Lord is also in the New Testament, not only in the Old Testament. Where would they get that? Where would they know the concept of the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord's vengeance? Well, they get it from the Old Testament. They get it from Isaiah. They get it from the prophets of God. They're just simply continuing to restate What has always been true, even though Christ has come and died and raised. These things are still true. These things are still coming. Its streams, the streams that are in the land of Edom, its streams shall be turned into pitch. In other words, a burning oil. And its loose earth will be turned into brimstone. And its land shall become burning pitch, and it shall not be quenched day or night, and its smoke shall go up forever. Does that sound like familiar language? Because now he's not only describing Edom, but he's describing a place where the fire doesn't go out day or night. The fire is never quenched. That sounds like the language that Jesus used. Tom, if you would, look up Revelation 14, and you're going to read verses 10 and 11 for us. Because that is very much like the language we're reading here, that that fire shall not be quenched night or day, and the smoke of it, that fire, shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall remain desolate, and none shall pass through it forever and ever. That is God's long-term plan for Edom, the land of the Edomites, the land of the people who have been the enemies of Israel, dating all the way back to Abraham, which again is why it's so important to understand the phrase, Jacob I've loved. That's Israel. Esau, I've hated. Read it if you would, Tom. Beginning at verse 10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So that language that John used to describe the ultimate torment and the end result of those people who turn away from God and follow after the beast That language is just like the language here, that the fire will not be quenched night or day, and the smoke of it is going to rise up forever. Verse 11, again describing the animals that are going to possess that land. But the pelican and the hedgehog shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. What interesting language that is because you use a plumb line in order to build things to lay out a foundation that you're going to build on you stretch out a line you use a plumb line 
And yet, here the plumb line is a plumb line of emptiness. There's no building on it. There's no construction on it. If you could measure it, you would be measuring nothing. It's nobles. It's going to have no nobles at all. No kings, no princes. It's nobles. There's no one there. It's nobles. There is no one there whom they may proclaim king. And all its princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up in its fortified towers. In other words, what were once the fortified towers that allowed them to make war with the surrounding nations are going to be so abandoned that thorns, vines are just going to grow up through it. Nettles and thistles will be in its fortified cities. It shall also be a haunt of jackals and an abode of ostriches. And the desert creatures shall meet with the wolves. The hairy goat also shall cry to its kind. Yes, and the night monster shall settle there and shall find herself a resting place. The tree snake shall make its nest and lay eggs there, and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, and the hawks shall be gathered there, every one with its kind. Seek for the book of the Lord and read. What is the book of the Lord? The scriptures. Seek for them. Look for them. Read it. Because not one of these will be missing. This is God's way of saying. It's written down. I said it. Isaiah wrote it down. My other prophets have written it down. And when it actually comes to pass... Go find the word of the Lord and read it, and you'll find out that it turned out exactly like I said it was going to. In the end, you're going to discover that I was right all the way along. Seek for the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing. None will lack its mate. For his mouth, the mouth of God, has commanded, and his spirit has gathered all those creatures, all those animals, and brought them to that desolate land to abide there. So even the creatures who come and live in the abandoned area of Edom don't get to take credit for showing up there. It's sovereign God who is going to make sure that that's where they end up because he's going to call them there because he's already said he was going to do it. He's already predicted it, and he's not going to leave it to chance. Instead, he's going to utilize his almighty sovereign power in order to bring those animals to that place so that you can go back and read his word and say, yep, turned out just like he said. He's not going to leave anything to chance. Seek for the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing. None will lack its mate. For his mouth has commanded and his spirit has gathered them and he has cast the lot for them. In other words, he determined their area, their land area, the same way that he brought the children of Israel into the promised land. And then he allotted them the particular pieces of land that belong to each tribe and even to each large family. The same way he said, I'm going to gather animals to the abandoned land of Eden and I'm going to assign them their land allotments. It's all up to the hand of an absolutely sovereign God. His hand has divided it to them by line. He has parceled it out to them. And they shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they, the wild animals, shall dwell in it. Okay, so that's verse 34. That's the judgment part. The judgment against the enemies of Israel. That starts with gather the nations and listen to me as I hand out this judgment. Starting at chapter 35, which is actually a shorter chapter, so we will make it this evening. Chapter 35 is all about Zion's future hope. And so the contrast is judgment for his enemies and blessing and a future and restoration and hope for those people who belong to him. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. So there's a reversal of fortune going on here. The land of the Edomites is a land that even to this very day has oil. And therefore, some of those countries are very rich. Some of those lands are fertile lands where they can grow plenty of food and take care of themselves. 
But chapter 34 described that it was going to become a desert. It was going to become desolated land. But within Zion, the land that was a wilderness and a desert is now going to blossom. So there's this enormous reversal of fortune. And the Arabah, which is the desert, is going to rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Going to be full of flowers and full of harvest and full of grain and full of food. It will blossom profusely, says verse 2. And rejoice with rejoicing and a shout of joy. What a huge difference. My sword is going to be satiated with the blood of men till it flows to the mountains, which is very much like it's going to flow to the bridles of the horses in the, uh, the valley of the Megiddo where that final destructive War is going to take place. That description in the book of Revelation is the same as the description that Isaiah gives, that the blood is going to be on the mountains. And then by contrast, even the flowers in the fields and everyone's going to shout for joy because God can determine one from another. God can determine the chosen, the elect. God can determine the vessels that are fitted for destruction. And it's all up to God. And I keep arguing the same argument over and over. I even get tired of hearing me say stuff like this. But I'm going to say it again anyway, because in this context, I think it fits. If you're going to formulate a theology about God, about the Bible, if you're going to formulate your thoughts about God, then make sure that you're formulating those thoughts from what the text actually says about him. There is this very imaginary God being preached through so many churches, from so many pulpits, written about in so many books, and that God does not resemble the God of the Bible at all. I also equally argue, if you're going to reject the Bible, know what it's about, because so many people are rejecting the imaginary God, the popularized God, the the current evangelifish kind of God that they're promoting. But the God of the Bible is a God of genuine fear and reverence and, and a grace that doesn't change and a loving kindness that he never turns from. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's no variableness or shadow of turning. And he is righteous and he is holy and he is a judge. And he's not afraid to pour out his wrath on the vessels of wrath that are fitted for destruction. That is a God that if he was actually preached and taught by the, the church at large, even the unbelieving world would have to admit that, okay, you've got at least a respectable God there. I can see why you fear that God. If that's the God you believe in, I can understand you reverencing and worshiping that God. But there's no reason to reverence or worship the God that is so frequently talked about, who seems to have no power, no ability, and he's waiting around to find out what people are going to do, and waiting for people to validate him or make a choice about him. The only God that you find in the Bible, whether you accept him or reject him, the only God you read about in the Bible is one who is absolutely, completely sovereign over absolutely, completely everything. And that is a respectable God who you really ought to get down on your face in front of. All right, so let's read about the land of Zion. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and a shout of joy. And the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. They will see the majesty of our God. One group of people are going to see the judgment of God, the anger of God, the wrath of God. One group of people is going to see the joy of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and the majesty of God. That's the camp I want to be in. I want to be in the group that gets to see the majesty and the glory of God. So encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. I think what Isaiah is getting at there is, if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not, but if you're anything like me, you've waited your whole life hoping, hoping, waiting, 
Maybe Christ will come back today. Maybe the righteousness of God will flood the earth this week. And so after a while, you become tired. You become exhausted. And so knowing the promises that God has poured out for Israel, knowing the promises that he has made for the land of Zion and for his holy hill, he says these words ought to then be an encouragement to those in Jerusalem who are waiting, those who are tired, those who have grown feeble, those who have grown exhausted. He says, keep reminding them, keep going back to my word and keep reminding them that this is not the end. The end is a glorious ending, and that ought to be an encouragement to them, the same way that Paul, when talking about Christ coming back to get his church, would say, now strengthen one another with these words. Because there are words that have to do with God that are actually an encouragement to us, that lift us up. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and recompense. And the recompense of God will come and he will save you. That's the message to Zion. That's the message to national Israel and the promise of their national restoration, any of you who are anxious because of the events of this world and the way that it looks like the world is going and you're in fear of the enemy armies that look like they're going to take you captive, instead take courage, don't be afraid. Behold, your God is going to avenge you. He's going to come with vengeance and he is going to recompense. That is going to happen. The recompense of God will come. Like I said a few moments ago, We all wish that maybe this week the righteousness of God would sweep over the world the way that uh, the oceans cover the world. We wish that Christ would come back today. We're ready to go. We're ready to go home. We've had enough of this lifetime. And yet we're told here the recompense of God will come. The day when he will judge in righteousness and the day when he will reward you for your faithfulness. That recompense will come and he will save you. That language, he will save you, resonates with us 21st century Christians because we say, yes, we're saved by Christ and the finished work of Christ. But in context here, this is a promise to Israel. God will save you. He will recompense between you and your enemies. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf of the deaf will be unstopped and then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams will break forth in the Arabah in the desert. So there's going to be geographical changes within Zion within the land of promise and even anatomical changes, people having their eyes open, their ears opened, people who are lame are going to be able to walk. There's going to be this tremendous amount of blessing and joy when God restores Israel. And the land that previously was scorched, says verse 7, and the scorched land is going to become like a pool. And the thirsty ground, the dry ground, the crusty ground, It's going to become springs of water. And what was once a haunt of jackals, which are dangerous creatures, sharp teeth. You don't want to be around jackals. They destroy your sheep. They destroy your animals, and they'll kill you. Once upon a time, the areas that were the haunt of jackals are going to become a resting place, a place where you can sit down in comfort, lay down, rest. You're fine. You're safe. And the grass becomes reeds and rushes. And a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander on it. And no lion will be there on that road, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. 
The redeemed of the Lord are going to walk on a highway that is known as the highway of holiness. Now, remember when I began, I said, this is going to get really eschatological. Because if that has already occurred, if that is already satisfied, and you know there are folk who argue that the Old Testament is completely done with, completely satisfied, well, then where is this highway? Show me to the highway of holiness where only holy people can walk. Only the redeemed of the Lord can walk. Where exactly is that? Over in the Middle East, somewhere near Jerusalem. Where is that? If it doesn't exist, then we know that this is all eschatological talk. This is stuff that still has to happen. This is stuff that God is going to do, and he's going to do it specifically to recompense Zion. That's what it says, and you can't avoid what it says. And I get really tired of people working really hard to avoid what it says. But it says what it says. The redeemed are going to walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. What did Isaiah just say there? The ransomed of the Lord will return. Who is that? That's Israel. That's national Israel who were ransomed out of Egypt, redeemed out of Egypt and brought to their own land, who have now been scattered. And then the promise that has already occurred a couple times in Isaiah is God saying, I'm going to gather you from all the places that I scattered you. I'm going to bring you back to this very land. So here's that promise yet again, that the ones who were ransomed by the Lord are going to return. Return where? Return to their land. Return to the land that God gave them, that God scattered them out of, that he has promised he's going to regather them to. But look at the context of when that gathering happens. That gathering happens in that eschatological moment when there's already been judgment poured out. The nations of the earth have already endured the wrath of God. Israel is being restored. This language is very millennial-sounding language. And then Jerusalem itself, Mount Zion, is going to be established, and it's going to be established in cleanliness, in holiness. There's going to be a highway there for all those who were walking to Jerusalem, to the temple. There's not going to be anything or anyone who is going to get in their way. Nothing is going to stop people, the redeemed of God, from coming to God And the ransomed of the Lord are going to return and they are going to come with joyful shouting to where? To Zion. To Zion. Is that language specific enough? Yes. Is it vague in any way? No. And it also fits the timeline that is laid out through the whole rest of the Bible. Time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. And then the restoration of Israel and the time of the kingdom. That's the premillennial, I don't even want to call it a scheme, that's the premillennial schedule that is laid out in the Bible. It's unavoidable. So the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. Doesn't that sound good to you? Are you as tired as I am? Yes. Oh, come on. Nobody's as tired as I am. (laughs) I'm just a tired guy. But yeah, the weariness of this world and the weariness of waiting, I just look forward to the idea of everlasting joy being upon our heads. And they're going to find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing is going to flee away forever. Turn to Revelation 21, the very end of the New Testament. Because now John is going to describe that same state that Isaiah just described. Starting at verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, very, very significant that it is called Jerusalem, 
It's not called New Boston or New York or New Any. It's New Jerusalem. I saw it coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death, and there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, and the first things have passed away. I like that God speaks of mourning and crying and death as the first things. That's what you had to go through first. But there's going to be a time when that's over. You don't have to go through that anymore because I'm going to make all things new. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write. Write it down. Same thing we saw in Isaiah. Write it in the word of God so people can come back and check it later. Write it down for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the waters of life without cost. Did you notice at the end of chapter 35 there in Isaiah, did you notice how often the language of water was mentioned and how the Arabah was going to become springs, how the Arabah was going to be full of streams and rivers of water? Water is a sign of refreshment, of life. As I said that, Micah's over there chugging water just to show the importance of water, the necessity of water. And so he says, I'll give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. It's all by grace. It's all by the goodness of God. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable, pay attention to those things that the Bible calls abominable, because many of the things that the Bible calls abominable are just standard fare these days. But the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral people and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars, for them their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's the same language we just saw in Isaiah. The judgment of the other nations that go to the place of the fire where the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came and spoke with me and said, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain. And he showed me the holy city. By the way, I have already made the points that I meant to make, but it just got good to me and I'm going to keep reading. And there's there's not a lot that you can do about it. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The writer of Hebrews contrasts Jerusalem that is now with Jerusalem that is above. Or that might even be Paul in the book of Galatians. Talking about the Jerusalem that is now, which is bondage, which he compares to Hagar and her son. But he says, there is a Jerusalem that is above that is the mother of us all. Paul's talking about the same thing John is. This Jerusalem that's finally going to come down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem, is going to be unlike anything that we've seen here on planet Earth yet. After the new heavens and the new earth, then of course comes a new Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the place where God has chosen to place his name. And that doesn't change. Once he's made that decision... That's a done deal. And he has chosen to place his name in Jerusalem. So when there's a new heaven and a new earth, of course there would be a new Jerusalem, the place where God has chosen to place his name. He carried me away. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, having the glory of God. And her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as the stone of a crystal clear jasper. And it had a great and a high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates there were 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are those names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. What does that mean? The 12 gates of the new Jerusalem are each named after the 12 tribes of Israel. 
In other words, in the New Jerusalem, there will still be 12 tribes of Israel. Because that's the way God designed it and designated it from the beginning. And when you get to the end of it all, the wrapping up of it all, when you get to Revelation 21, you find the 12 tribes of Israel. What a surprise. It's a really consistent God. It's a really consistent Bible. It's telling the same story over and over again. Oh, I've got to go. There are three gates, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke to me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles in length and width and height, and they're all equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass, and the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. Then he goes through the first foundation and all the different stones. Let's just move forward to verse 22. Well, to chapter 22. Well, no, I can't go there either. Verse 22. There was no temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Why would you need a temple? The Lord God is going to be the temple. City has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Notice the division. It is called Jerusalem, and the gates have the 12 tribes of Israel, and the nations, the Gentiles, are going to bring their glory to it. It belongs to Israel. It belongs to the 12 tribes of Israel. It belongs to the Jewish Messiah. It still belongs to the Jewish God. And the nations that Isaiah talked about, the nations that fall under God's judgment, some of those nations, some of those Gentiles, by grace, through Christ, are going to end up in the new Jerusalem and bring their glory to it. The nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there is no night there, its gates shall never be closed. Why would you close the gates of a city? To protect it from enemies. But if you've got a holy highway, and if there are no enemies, and if there are no wild animals, and if you've taken care of all the warrior armies, and you've taken care of all your enemies, the gates are open all the time. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's very similar to what Isaiah described, that only the righteous are going to walk on the holy highway. Do you see the parallels? Mm -hmm. These things are right there in the book. And so my point again is, in having gone through all that, is that the Bible keeps telling the same story. And just because Jesus came and died and raised again, the story that the Old Testament tells hasn't changed. New Testament authors repeat the same stuff. And they're still looking forward to it. And they're even more confident that it's coming because the Messiah came. Because the Messiah came and then the Holy Spirit was given, that is the surety, that is the guarantee that God is still in the enterprise of doing everything he ever said he was going to do. He is still true to his word. He's still faithful to his people, and he has not abandoned Israel. Next week, then, when we start the next section of Isaiah, it will get into the narrative that we read a couple of weeks ago, and we saw how big portions of the next bit of Isaiah are actually repeated in 2 Kings, or, or its narrative from 2 Kings is repeated in Isaiah. But either way, you're going to hear the story now of 
Isaiah dealing with the king of Judah and telling him to have confidence in God because God alone is his deliverance. So that's where we'll pick up next week. I'm glad we got both chapters in tonight. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.